You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and, and it goes down smooth. Hey! Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. The Russ Belleville Show. The voice of the marijuana nation. It's like marijuana ought to be legalized. Good people smoke marijuana. Now, here's your host, Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and tokettes and non-toking lovers of liberty. It is Wednesday, March 29th, 2017, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. It's episode number 915. And coming up on today's show, in the news, we have a new interim drug czar in the Trump administration. In our cannabis focus, Project Sam coming after Oregon law enforcement's report on coal memo violations. In drug war data mining, we look at the obscene amount of cash the cops are stealing under civil asset forfeiture. In the wide world of weed, we get ready for a Supreme Court decision on Friday that may decriminalize Dhaka in South Africa. And in the radical rant, I ask, how will we sell tax and regulate on a $30 ounce? Then, in Hour 2, we've got a fascinating look at ancient Chinese understanding of cannabis as medicine and how Nevada's liquor distributors want no part of pot. But first, let's get to the news. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis News. This is your Cannabis Headline News for Wednesday, March 29, 2017. Tom Angel's Marijuana Moment reports that President Trump has tapped Richard Baum to serve as acting White House drug czar. Baum, who'd previously led the Office of National Drug Control Policy's international efforts and served as a congressional staffer, has taught a class at Georgetown University called The War on Drugs, Causes, Consequences, and Alternatives. He reportedly once said at a United Nations event that drunk driving is, quote, less of a problem, end quote, than is driving under the influence of other drugs. Baum also said that spraying a killer fungus on drug crops in Colombia, quote, looks incredibly promising, end quote. A White House official said that Baum is just the caretaker at the ONDCP, quote, while the president makes a very serious choice, end quote, about a permanent drug czar. Senators Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, and Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, on Tuesday reintroduced the Protecting Kids from Candy-Flavored Drugs Act to increase criminal penalties for marketing candy-flavored drugs to appeal to children. Law enforcement reports that drug dealers frequently combine drugs with chocolate or fruit flavors or package the drugs to look like candy or soda to attract youth. For example, there are reports of candy bracelets containing ecstasy, gummy bears laced with Xanax, and candy laced with THC. The bill provides a 10-year prison sentence for production and distribution of drugs combined with a beverage or candy product that are marketed or packaged to appear similar to a beverage or candy product or modified by flavoring or coloring to appear similar to a candy or beverage product. Such product manufacturers and sellers would still be protected by the Rohrabacher-Blumenauer Amendment, forbidding taxpayer funds for use in federal marijuana prosecutions in medical marijuana states, but such entities in recreational states would conceivably be targets for prosecution under this bill. Vermont lawmakers have unexpectedly taken a marijuana legalization bill off of the House floor. 
Massroots reports that the House of Representatives was scheduled to vote on a bill to legalize low-level marijuana possession and home grow on Tuesday afternoon, but that didn't happen. The legislation was instead referred to the Committee on Human Services for further review. As currently drafted, the bill, H-170, would remove all penalties for possession of up to one ounce of cannabis and cultivation of as many as two mature and four immature plants. It would not allow any form of marijuana sales. While it is unknown if the bill will make it back to the floor or whether it will be amended by the Human Services Panel, the delay is potentially a good thing for legalization advocates. Several members expected to vote yes were not present in the chamber on Tuesday. That could have jeopardized what is expected to be a close floor vote if and when it happens. The West Virginia Senate Judiciary Committee passed a bill Tuesday that would legalize and regulate medical marijuana in West Virginia. The bill, sponsored by Senator Richard Ojeda, Democrat of Logan, still needs to be approved by the full Senate, go through the House of Delegates Committee process, and be voted on by that body, as well as be signed by the governor before it would become law. The bill caps the number of growers at 15, but that number could be changed later based on demand. It would cap the number of dispensaries at 60, but that number could also be changed later. The bill passed the committee by voice vote with 13 voting for it and three voting against it. The bill would allow patients to cultivate two mature cannabis plants and possess a to-be-determined 30-day supply of marijuana. One of six plans to regulate medical marijuana moved forward in the state house on Tuesday in Florida after the first hearing for any of the plans. The bill includes some of the strictest controls on Florida's nascent medical marijuana industry of any plan offered by the legislature. It would initially limit growers to only the seven currently in existence and bans smoking, vaping, and edibles. The bill, supported 14 to 1 in the Health Quality Subcommittee, has two more committee stops before going to the House floor for a vote. None of the five Senate bills regulating the medical marijuana industry has had a hearing. The Senate will have to center on one plan, then the two chambers will have to negotiate to make their bills identical before passing out of the legislature and on to the governor's desk. This has been your Cannabis Headline News for Wednesday, March 29th, 2017. I'm Russ Belville. In the interest of fair and balanced journalism, The Russ Belleville Show presents the anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Some kids think smoking weed makes you cool. What about those who think you already are? This has been the Russ Belleville Show's anti-drug public service announcement of the day. Exclusively on RadicalRust.com. At 
Herbie's Cannabis Seeds, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best quality seeds from the world's most respected cannabis seed producers, all at the lowest online prices. You can find Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. All cannabis seeds are sold as souvenirs and as a means of preserving cannabis genetics. Herbie's Seeds in no way intends to condone, promote, or incite the use of illegal or controlled substances. We strongly urge all prospective customers to check their national laws prior to placing an order. Herbie's Seeds at Herbie'sHeadShop.com. Proud sponsors of The Russ Belville Show and 420 Radio. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. We can do a lot of privatizations and private prisons. It seems to work a lot better. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> a public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. The world of cannabis is evolving at a frenetic pace. The Russ Belleville Show gets behind the headlines to take a deeper look at breaking news in our Cannabis Focus. Today in the Cannabis Focus, we look at a press release from Project Samuel, the smart approaches to marijuana use except legalization. Their uh, press release is entitled, National Organization Files Public Records Request for Marijuana-Related Records from the State of Oregon. Leaked study reveals state violations of federal marijuana guidance, raises questions about state efforts to provide full disclosure of public health, and safety consequences of legalization. Basically, this is Kevin Sabat and the folks at Project SAM issuing a open records request to the state of Oregon trying to get what is entitled the law let's see this is the baseline evaluation of cannabis enforcement priorities in oregon this was a january 17 2017 report from the oregon state police's drug enforcement section now while the report came out in 2017 january it didn't get reported on until last week when noel crumby the beat reporter at the oregonian on march 18th wrote a story entitled oregon remains a top source for black market pot state police report says I'm sure Kevin Sabet is just licking his chops over the idea that after I tailed him around the state of Oregon, thanks to open records requests that found him to be paying being paid $3,000 per stop to try to defeat our legalization initiative in 2014. Now the shoe's on the other foot. and He's using open records requests to try to prove that legalization has failed. Now, I completely support the use of these open records requests. I believe the more data, the better, the more sunshine, the better. So good for Kevin in in trying to obtain this. Some of the items in the report that is troubling is that the law enforcement opens up by mentioning the Cole memo. Now, the Cole memo is the federal memo that was instituted under the Obama administration that lists eight priorities that determine whether or not the federal government is going to pursue enforcement of federal marijuana laws in the states that have legalized non-medical retail cannabis. And those priorities include preventing the distribution of marijuana to minors, preventing revenue from the sale of marijuana from going to criminal gangs, preventing diversion of marijuana to prohibition states, Preventing legal marijuana activity being used as a cover for illegal drug activity or other illegal activity. 
preventing violence and the use of firearms during cultivation, preventing drugged driving and other adverse public health consequences, preventing growing marijuana on public lands, and preventing marijuana possession or use on federal property. So this January 2017 report by the Oregon State Police's Drug Enforcement Section is in reference to those eight priorities. It's basically the state of Oregon's law enforcement deciding among themselves they will figure out whether or not the state has complied with the Cole memo. And here's what they find. When it comes to the cannabis diversion, they say that Oregon cannabis has an expansive geographic footprint and has been detected outside the United States. That six Oregon counties are tied to a majority of the diversion, and this diversion primarily goes to Illinois, Minnesota, New York, and Florida, statistically speaking. And there is a geographic relationship between the amount of OMMP registrants, that is, people with medical cannabis cards. There is a relationship between the number of medical cannabis cards and the counties that are diverting marijuana to these other states. This is exactly the kind of data that Kevin Sabet is looking for to be able to take to Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice and say, see, see, you said this coal memo was a was a good way of measuring whether or not we ought to prosecute people. Well, look here in the state of Oregon. They're clearly violating the coal memo when it comes to diversion of cannabis. Now, it's unfair, of course, because Oregon has always had diversion of cannabis legalized, medicalized, decriminalized, or completely illegal, it doesn't matter. Oregon has always been a source state for the cannabis uh, uh, for cannabis supply across the country. California has always been a source state. These folks with Project Sam and, and Oregon law enforcement are trying to take the point that weed gets grown in Oregon and shipped to other states and blame it on legalization. As if it never happened before, (laughs) as if this diversion hadn't already been occurring. And really, if you want to cure the problem with diversion, the cure for that is legalizing in the other states. The only reason why people want to divert weed from Oregon to Chicago is because they can get three times the profit off of it. As far as the public health and safety, they say historically an average of 2% of Oregon's traffic fatalities were associated solely with cannabis. This rate has not changed significantly. So there's some good news for our side. I hope, I hope Sabet, if he's going to push this thing about the diversion, that he's willing to look at the other facts that are listed here that shows no stoned mayhem on the freeways. The predictions that we have all sorts of traffic fatalities and problems with on the roads have not occurred according to the Oregon State Police. They say that the uh, kids, the amount of kids that might be using hasn't changed any. I hope he pays attention to that finding. They do point out that there's been um, 60% of 11th graders in Oregon say that acquiring cannabis is easy. But this is another rate that has not changed significantly since the legalization of marijuana or even since medical marijuana. Since 1975, they've been asking kids across the country how easy it is to get marijuana, and they consistently say it's fairly easy. They point out that uh, the enforcement costs, they say eradication and enforcement efforts have a high return on investment. An average of $1,266 worth of illicit cannabis is returned for every dollar spent. Now, this is another one of those bullshit statistics, right? 
where the cops say, well, we spent a buck on enforcement. We got 1200 bucks of weed off the streets. That's because they'll look at a seedling and they'll say, well, that seedling, when it grows to full maturity, and if it's tended well, could produce a pound of weed. And then that pound of weed's worth 3000 bucks. And look at how much weed we got off the streets. Well, that weed is not worth a thousand bucks when it's just a little seedling. That's the kind of funny math they like to do to make it sound like, hey, throw some money to us cops. It's not wasted. You're not wasting your money paying us to go pull up weeds. Look at all the weed we get off the streets. No, you don't. You just manage to keep some weed from making it to the streets. There's tons of weed on the streets, more than enough weed on the streets for everybody who wants to get weed. You're making no difference whatsoever. They also point out that uh, criminals are exploiting Oregon's cannabis industry for financial crimes and fraud. Criminals exploit every industry for financial crimes and fraud. That's what criminals do. That's what con men do. The cannabis industry is no different than any other industry in being victimized by criminals. Why that needs to be a ding against legalization, I don't quite understand. But do understand, this is something that we're going to get from the folks like Project Sam that are desperately looking for some way to get the federal government, the Sessions Department of Justice, to go after the states that have produced recreational cannabis laws. Kevin Savet's quote is, The people of Oregon deserve to know the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to marijuana legalization. The findings of this report are explosive and only raise more questions regarding the ability of Oregon to protect public health and safety and abide by federal guidelines. Was the release of this report intentionally downplayed given its findings? Why was a report produced in January not made public for months? Did state officials interfere in releasing this information due to the troubling findings? Okay, so some of the troubling findings he likes to point out, it says that Oregon's black market has thrived since legalization. Oregon's black market has always thrived. Again, these Sabat wants to point to things that existed under prohibition. And then when they didn't immediately become completely ameliorated 100% after legalization, boom, that's the fault of legalization. No, the reason why there's still a thriving black market in Oregon is because the price of cannabis is still far higher than what it should be. The problem with there being a black market is because people in Idaho still can't buy weed legally. People in Chicago still can't buy weed legally. People in Dallas still can't buy weed legally. So there's profit incentive, as there always has been under prohibition. This is the fear I've had about legalization and, and one of the you know unavoidable risks that we take in this incremental approach is that when we make our incremental gains we don't get as much credit as we deserve for the gains, but we'll take all the blame for the deficits that still exist under prohibition. We'll still get blamed for the, the pounds of weed that leave in a trunk from Southern Oregon on their way to Chicago. We get blamed for Chicago's prohibition. We get blamed because there is a massive price disparity between prohibition weed and legal weed. And then that becomes our fault. We legalized and reduced the price, and in comparison to what it is out there in Chicago, we reduced the risk, 
and now people can make more profit. That's our fault. No, that's Chicago's fault. That's the fault of everybody else that maintains prohibition. And yes, there's going to be initial problems when you start any new regulatory structure. We weren't quite ready for how popular edibles would be, for example. But under legalization, we learn from those mistakes. We pass new regulations. We suspend some licenses. We do some stings and we get the problem fixed. None of the problems that exist under prohibition get fixed if you maintain prohibition. They just get worse. The weed gets more potent. The marketing to the kids happens more often. The violence exacerbates. Everything that is bad about marijuana or any drug for that matter only becomes worse when you prohibit it. One way. One God that I can understand that one wife that is not civilized. All right, folks, that sound means that it's 20 after in the mountain time zone. Happy 420 to everybody in the Rocky Mountains. We're going to take our union-mandated safety briefing, and when we come back, we'll tell you exactly how much cash the DEA has stolen from American citizens under the guise of civil asset forfeiture. No Herb Thrasher from the Herb Thrasher Flower Hour. Now get ready for Herb Age Designs for the proud cannabis consumer. Herb Age Designs. Lifestyle gear for the 420 friendly. Herb Age Designs. We've got Frisbee golf discs and durable hemp gear. Herb Age Designs. We've got shot glasses, drinking glasses, coffee mugs, and beer cozies. Check us out on Facebook and online at HerbAgeDesigns.com. And follow Herb Age and Herb Thrasher on Twitter. The Russ Belleville Show reminds you to never smoke and drive impaired. Hang out for a while and share. Warning. It's taken on this show are larger than they appear. Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. Hey, man. Am I driving okay? A public service message from the Russ Belleville Show. Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. On Wednesday, the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General released a report on the DEA's practice of asset forfeiture, seizures of cash and property done by the Drug Enforcement Administration in the service of the war on drugs. And according to the report, over the past 10 years, the DEA has taken $3.2 billion in cash from people without charging them with a crime. Yes, the 2000 the, the report released Wednesday found that since 2007 the DEA has seized more than 4 billion dollars worth of cash. But 81% of the seizures, which is about 3.2 billion, were administrative seizures. Now, what this means is that there were no civil charges, no criminal charges ever filed against these people who had their money taken, and no judicial review 
of the seizures. A judge never looks at this. There's no crime ever charged. DEA just finds people with cash and steals, takes their cash, steals their cash under this doctrine of civil asset forfeiture. Now, this doctrine allows the authorities, allows the cops, DEA, to be able to take your cash, your property, and your contraband if you're suspected of a crime. And this $3.2 billion we're talking about does not include other physical assets like cars, homes, electronics, clothing, jewelry, anything like that. No, just cash, $3.2 billion. So obviously a whole bunch more than that if you throw in the properties that have been taken. This civil asset forfeiture does not require any sort of criminal conviction, and it allows the cops, the DEA, the local cops, to keep the cash and property for themselves. So all this does, of course, is sets up a policing for profit motive. One case that I reported on one time coming out of Tennessee referred to how there were 10 times as many stops by the cops on the freeway leaving Nashville than the freeway entering Nashville. And the reason why is because the cars entering Nashville were bringing the marijuana. The cars leaving Nashville are taking the money back to the growers. And so, of course, the cops set up on the side where the money's coming back so they can use civil asset forfeiture to seize that cash for themselves. Now, of course, the cops say this is an important tool. We've got to take the assets off of the drug dealers. We can't let them profit from their ill-gotten gains and so forth. But it's gotten to the point where these police departments base their budgets on projections of what the asset forfeiture collections will be. So now they've got to bust people. They've got to go looking for people and specifically looking for people that got money to be able to make their budget. This, of course, is a huge affront to civil liberties as it sets up the police as going after people not based on whether they're a harm to society, but whether or not they are a a, a cash seizure that will affect their bottom line. And the worst part about this is that the seizures themselves are the suspects, not you, right? So if the cops think you're a drug courier and you got $10,000 cash on you and they seize your cash, they don't have to charge you with being the drug courier. They don't have to have fine drugs in your car. They don't have to prove anything with regard to your criminal intent. They have all sorts of uh, little considerations like the following. They say if um, you're traveling to or from a known source city for drug trafficking, So if you're coming to Portland or Seattle or L.A. or any of these major cities that are hubs of drug trafficking, that could be a reason to take your money. If you purchased a ticket within 24 hours of traveling, obviously you must be a drug dealer. Couldn't be just making a last minute travel choice. If you purchased a ticket for a long flight with an immediate return, like you're flying six hours to New York and then that day you're getting back on the plane and flying back, obviously a drug dealer. Purchasing a one-way ticket. Must be a drug dealer. And traveling without checked luggage. Couldn't be that you don't want to spend the extra 25 to 35 bucks for the checked bag. Couldn't be that your carry-on bag is enough for you to be able to get by. No, if you're not checking a bag, you must be a drug dealer. We've got to take your cash. So the problem with this, of course, is that the cash 
the money, the, the property that's seized becomes the defendant in the case. You actually have cases like United States versus $8,850 in U.S. currency. United States versus one men's Rolex Pearl Master Watch. Those are official cases. And the property is guilty until proven innocent. It's not like your regular criminal court where you're innocent until proven guilty. The state's got to prove you did something wrong. No, the default is your cash did something wrong. It is drug money. You've got to go to court and prove it that it's not. And in these court proceedings for civil asset forfeiture, you don't have a right to an attorney. This isn't under the Sixth and Seventh Amendment rights to an attorney kind of stuff. So you got to pay for the lawyer. But again, how do you pay for the lawyer when the cops took your cash? And they know that. They seize the cash and they know that most people aren't going to go through the trouble, the time, and the expense to fight to get their money back. Who's going to spend months and months and $6,000 in attorney fees to get $8,000 in cash back? Only one-fifth of the people who had their cash seized by DEA disputed those seizures in court. But of those who disputed the seizure, nearly 40% got all or some of their cash back. So when people do fight, there's a good chance they get their money back. It's just not that many people fight. Civil asset forfeiture needs to go. Nobody should lose their property if they're not convicted of a crime. It's simple as that. We can't have policing for profit. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. People addicted to marijuana are three times more likely to be addicted to heroin. Okay, well, maybe you're high, too. first 2015 adult marijuana prohibition came to an end in Oregon immediately over 400,000 adults who consume cannabis responsibly were no longer criminals this is what freedom sounds like brought to you by Portland Normal Global prohibition of cannabis is a crime against the planet committed primarily by the United States. But as more U.S. states reform their marijuana laws, countries around the world are stepping back from cannabis prohibition. 
Join us now for a look at the international cannabis reform movement in this edition of The Wide World of Weed. Today in the wide world of weed, we take a look at South Africa, where there's an important case going on that will be decided. A judgment will be handed down in Western Cape High Court in Cape Town, South Africa, this Friday. It's a case that involves the decriminalization of DAGA, D-A-G-G-A, which is the South African word for cannabis. DACA party leader Jeremy Acton and Rastafarian Gareth Prince argued on December 13th and 14th last year for decriminalization of cannabis. Acton, Prince, and 18 plaintiffs appealed to the court for the Criminal Prohibition of DAGA Act, and they say it should be unconstitutional. That act makes it a crime to possess DACA unless it is for medical reasons. They are also challenging the Medicines and Related Substances Act. They say the laws prohibiting DACA use are unfair, discriminatory, outdated, and applied disproportionately to black users. Last year at the United Nations, I got to speak to two South Africans, the DACA couple. Here's some more from South Africa. Good day, tokers and toquettes. Once again, I'm here in the United Nations uh, cafeteria. And it just so happens that I've run into another set of international guests. I am here with the Dacha couple. You said it correctly. South Africa. I, I studied. <laughs> I'm a radio guy. I have to learn how to pronounce things. So uh, Dacha, of course. We were speaking Jamaicans earlier. Okay. They, they call Ganja it Ganja. Man, the Ganja man. But America, we just call it weed. Yep. But uh, tell us uh, your names and what the Dacha couple is all about. Uh, my name is Myrtle Clark, and um, the Dacha couple was a term coined by the South African media after it hit the newspapers that we were arrested in our home on charges of possess- possessing Dacha, and um, we decided to sue the South African government uh, on charges of uh, in, uh, enacting unlawful laws. So the newspapers got hold of it, and that's how come we called the Dacha couple. And, and my name's Jules Stubbs. I'm the other half of the Dacha couple. And uh, we had three choices, Russ. We could have either faced seven years in jail for possession, because that's how it is in South Africa, or we could have paid a bribe, because that's how it is in South Africa. White people don't really get to jail in South Africa. We have some money, so we could have done that. Uh, but that would have given us a criminal record, and we travel a lot. So we would never have got a visa. We'd have a 10-year suspended. So you know what? We just fought it, and we're fighting it. And we've set a precedent in South African law. And now we're hobnobbing it at the United Nations. And 10 minutes ago, they wouldn't let me in because I have the word cannabis on my shirt. Whoa. So we're having a, a conference on international drug policy but we can't have the word cannabis be seen. (laughs) My goodness, people might start talking about it. That's right. I I was absolutely incredulous. It happened this morning, and now today, because I've only got one shirt on, and my my hotel room's 20 blocks away, I still have the same shirt on, so you can see me perspiring here because I've had to put a hoodie over the top of it all so I stay legal, dude. Uh, so, so your case uh, got prosecuted and it's over? No, uh, no, oh, we've only just kind of begun. Um, yeah, so it was in 2010 when this, when this all started, but it's obviously been a like, long road since then. We're waiting now for a new date because it was meant to be, it meant to start in the High Court on the 10th of March, but then it was postponed again because we've got so many expert witnesses coming over to South Africa to testify. We need 20 court days. So now we're just waiting waiting for our sort of the high legal beagles to organize a court date because it's going to be 20 court days. So um, we hope to, before the middle of the year, to announce the new court date so that we can move on. 
Yeah. You, you mentioned briefly uh, white people don't go to jail no. in South Africa for this. It's kind of like America. You know, it's kind of like America. However, um, it's a kind of a reverse situation in South Africa. We believe that most of the people that are arrested or intimidated or extorted are white people. It's kind of different. The arrest rate is higher for whites than it is for blacks, we believe, because white people have got more to extort from them. If you've got a nice car and you look as if you've got some nice clothes, then the cops go, hmm, we might be able to get something out of this, because a lot of this stuff just stops on the side of the road. Nobody goes to, you might get put in jail for the weekend, but during that weekend, you might get the docket to disappear. You might get a tout lawyer to pay the right bribe to the right people. So that's what we mean. There's for sure the disparity in incarceration is the same as it is in the USA. There are peop more people of color in jails in South Africa than there are Caucasians because most uh, Caucasians manage to get their way out of it just with resources, basically. And we, we've sat, I've personally sat in a South African jail on occasion three times, and some of the people that are sitting in there are just sat there because they don't have any bail. That's the only crime they've committed, is not having the amount of bail to post to get out. And Myrtle has just dealt with a Rastafarian man outside Cape Town. He was languishing in a police cell for four months because he didn't have, what is it? 1,500 uh, 100 US. He didn't have $100 bail, and now he's been there for four months. Wow. Oh, that's silly, isn't it? How much uh, possession amount does it take for these charges to get um, Anything. Anything. We've, Any we've, we've, have, yep. we've seen convictions for 0.5 of a gram. Oh. Uh, or as I like to call it, out of marijuana. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just a gyric in the bottom of your bag. We, are, we, we were actually... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were arrested for, uh, we, we had a, a, a quantity of cannabis, but the law says that if you have over 115 grams, 115, you are a dealer. Does that sound like science to you, Russ? 115 grams one, is one, about four ounces? Four yeah, it's pound. about, it's, uh, it's five ounces, yeah, yeah. It's about five ounces, so if you have that on your possession, you are automatically a dealer, and now we're talking about some serious jail time. Because if a guy has three cases of beer in his fridge, ah, he's a beer salesman. That's right, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> he's could a, be just stocking up. No, not no. at all. Oh, the disparity. And man. if you have 114 grams, you're not a dealer. But if you've got 116 grams, you are. So you know, at, at, at the time, uh, we know that it's very easy to actually uh, argue away these particular charges because for there to be a dealing charge, there has to have been dealing. There has to be ganja, cannabis, dacha, and money in exactly the same place at the same time. So what they do is they intimidate you on the spot because a dealing charge is jail time. So when, once, once people are scared, they make stupid moves. And that's all the cops are waiting for you to do, you know. They're making you incriminate yourself just by mm -hmm. them scaring the crap out of you. Yeah, I saw... Uh a meme cartoon on Facebook the other day that showed the squirrel stopped in the middle of the road. And they say the squirrel goes 90% across the road and then stops, and what kills him is him trying to go back the other way. <laughs> he says that's the same thing when people get caught with drugs, is they're the squirrel that that's, stopped, and they panic, that's and they right. get themselves that's a great busted analogy. Worse. That's right. Yeah. And we see it time and again. And we've got a little booklet called Know Your Rights, because loads of people in South Africa don't actually know that there is a procedure. There's a proper procedure to be arrested. You have rights, and at that point when you're busted, people don't think they have any rights. So we produced this booklet, which is now version four, and right at the very beginning it says, just shut up, say nothing, sign nothing, don't wind them up, just take it on the chin, 
if you get arrested on a Friday, which is modus operandi, you're not going to get out till Monday. That's how it is. They're going to put you in a jail for three days and punish you. The alleged cannabis user will now be punished in the state jail for three days. And at that point, the minute you start tuning the cops back, they're going to make your life miserable. You're not going to eat. You won't get any water. So uh, what's the status of your case now? And, uh, okay, so pending pending a new date okay. <laughs> uh, in the High Court, and then obviously um, all evidence is led in the High Court. And then as, as our legal team say, well, once we're through the other side of the High Court, we can breathe a bit easier. Then it will most probably go through the Supreme Court of Appeals and then onto the Constitutional Court, which is obviously the, the highest court in the land. And we've got some really amazing witnesses coming over. We have Donald Abrahams confirmed. We have Carl Hart confirmed. Yeah, so because we're not a, we're, we're not about we're not sick and we don't want to make socks. Um, we just want rights. to get stoned. Yeah. Actually, yeah. we like being stoned. So, so that's the bottom honest. line of that's our case. We, yeah. we, believe, we don't believe in recreational medical nothing. We don't see any distinction whatsoever. We are fit and well and health, healthy because we use the cannabis plant. That's, that's it. And all the people that come to us at our non-profit company looking for cannabis as medication and they're sick, not one of them has a relationship with the plant. Not one of them. 400, 500 of them, all of them. They come to us because they're sick, because they haven't used their plants all their lives. So we're doing this from a human rights angle. It is our right to put whatever we want in our bodies. And it is enshrined in the South African Bill of Rights that that is the case. But, of course, it's not the case. Just like it is in your Bill of Rights and the Decla Declaration of Independence. They've got all this blah, blah, blah about human rights. But, oh, yeah, okay. Well, you didn't see that, that asterisk at the bottom that says, except if it has to do with drugs. <laughs> exactly. That's, That's a caveat yeah. at the That's bottom. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's a tiny fine print those uh, founding fathers put in. Yeah. Uh, so um, in South Africa, what's it like... Um, trying to change these laws. A lot of government uh, oppression, a lot of them trying to turn back, turn this there back. There is no political no, will. not really. Not really. Um, you know, we, we are kind of steer clear of, of the politicians. It has, it's only been in the last uh, sort of 18 months that we've started to engage with the broader d drug policy debate and policy in general because we're fighting this through the courts. You know, I don't know if you've heard, seen South Africa in the news lately. Our president is not exactly the most popular person in the land because he spent $14 million renovating his private residence. So, um, and the, he was found guilty by the, by the highest court in the land. The yeah. judge president said the, the, the president of the country is guilty of embezzlement. Wow. So he went on national television and said, I apologize. Moving on. Nothing happened. <laughs> wow. Yeah, true story. Can I say that my sister was there? Said, yeah, this same guy in Zoom uh, was accused of being raping the secretary. Yep, yep. He said, what? Uh, did you rape your secretary? Well, she didn't she like it. She got AIDS. Uh, yeah, but wash myself. That yeah, was the answer. Yeah, that's right. So that is, we have a, uh, a cartoonist called Zapiro, who's very famous for he, every time he draws the president, there's a little shower head sticking out the top of his head. As a, as a reference <laughs> yeah. to the fact that he slept with, he slept actually with a relative. Ah, it was a relative that he slept with, and um, he was un, had unprotected sex, and he said, "Well, I had a shower afterwards." <laughs> 
see. Yeah, so this is this is the leader of the of our country, and so um, this is the person we're expecting to make science and evidence based. Yeah, decisions exactly. On. So that is that is ex- <laughs> that's yeah. exactly why we are not doing. Obviously, it's not the courts that change the law; it's the, it's the politicians that change the law ultimately. But we have to get this through the courts first, because one thing that out of um, it's about two weeks ago the constitutional court judgment on the president it gave us incredible confidence in our courts in our judicial system it's really really strong we've got a strong set of judges on the constitutional court and um we're gonna get there we've got a very strong constitution actually in mexico you everybody knows about the the four people in mexico who got the judgment there they used the south african constitution there as an example for that case, oh. and we've been in contact with the, the the defendants in that case, and the South African Constitution is is, is famous in the circles where constitutions are famous. You know, it's wow. like yeah. Did you have something? No, no, no. Just ask you, what was the point in the Constitution that could help us out of the prohibition uh, strategies? Uh, what is the point in the it, it, Well, it's just based on human rights. It's a very, yeah. very strongly worded human rights declaration, the South African Constitution. Yeah, but uh, they could always say uh, we have to control drugs, etc. Is it as well, fixed you know, in the you know, you know the way that the Mexican judgment was worded was so poignant? It was the fact that if it's impossible for me yes. to, uh, to mature the way I want to and develop my personality if I can't use cannabis. I use oh. cannabis in my life, and if I can't do that, oh, okay. I cannot fully develop my personality. Ah, that yeah, was the ju- and that was the judgment. That's a very, very poignant thing to say. Yes. And I'm hoping a South African judge will say the same thing to me one day. So we're hoping for a decision that recognizes a freedom of conscience. Yes. Yes. You've got it in one. That's my fight. Cognitive liberty. Exactly. The sovereignty of your body. Yeah. It's not rocket is science. Alexander Shulgin? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. If I'm, if this is the border, and if I'm not the sovereign, right. pass this border. Completely. Yeah. And if also it, the whole principle of a victimless crime is also... You, yeah, you know. Our mantra actually on, a, on our stickers is, I am not a criminal. Very because good. I'm not. I'm a really hard-working, tax-paying person, but I happen to use the cannabis plant. So... Check this, check this out, folks. Go to the website, dachacouple.co.za. I even said yeah, Z. No, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, and that's a non-profit, non-profit company. company. Fieldsofgreenforall.org.za. Yeah. Fantastic. We live in Johannesburg. I'm actually an Englishman. I, I was, I'm an Englishman. I've been in South Africa for 25 years. It's my home. I don't do Europe very well. I do Africa very well. But on the other hand, it was very nice to leave Africa last week because, man, it can drive you crazy, that place. Huh? Yeah. It's the Wild West. Yeah. It, it all happens all the time. That's one thing that does happen in Africa, stuff, all the time. It really is a dynamic place, and you never know where you, get, where you stand. It's a very brutal country. There's a lot of crime. There's a lot of murders. There's a lot of very angry, starving people, and it's been really cool to come to Manhattan. But I must admit, I was very, very surprised coming into a drug policy meeting to be told that I can't wear a cannabis T-shirt. That's just out to lunch. I'm sorry, folks. It's well, just it, a- it, fits, it fits along with uh, they held a UN session, especially you know, one of the side sessions on youth, listening to the voices of youth in the drug war. There was not a single young person on the panel, uh, and all the SSTP people uh, who showed up, yes. all the kids who showed up to go to it, weren't let in. 
Right. Well, <laughs> isn't that just how it is yeah, in this yeah, building? It's yeah. like yeah. lots of stuffy old white men running the show, eh? Yeah. It is. And w- but one thing I did hear on the first day was, for the first time ever, a president. Yes. Not an ex-president. A real live incumbent president say legalize already and that was the man from Mexico the Mexican president he said no cannabis he said we've gone past decriminalization now just legalize this plant once and for all and let's get on with it and I've never heard an incumbent president say that ever so that was quite cool but nobody actually reported it because it's too big This has been an amazing discussion with the Dacha Couple. Check them out online, dachacouple.co.za. Thank you so much for talking to us. It's it's an honor to come and see you because you keep us going in South Africa. We feel as if we're in a backwater. You know, we're at the bottom of next stop, Antarctica. It's a long way from here. So all your writings and all your words and your show is very important to us and to activists in South Africa because we consider you're on the front line. Because if there's going to be a blog post, it'll be yours first. You've always got the foot in the door first. So we commend you for that. Well, thank you. I, I hope to visit South Africa, Johannesburg someday, and I'll give you a ring when I do. Oh, uh, no, you should. Yes, yeah. please, too. If you need a bed for the night, please come oh. and stay with us. I plan on taking them up on that someday as soon as I possibly can. That's Jules and Myrtle, the Dacha couple. I do not know if they are one of the 18 co-plaintiffs on that case that will be decided on Friday. I I sent a message out to them earlier today asking that question, but uh, my earlier today is there later this evening, so I don't know that they got it in time. But I'll let you know if they respond. I'll let you know if they are part of this case. When we return, we'll have time for a radical rant. Where I ask the question, how will we sell, tax, and regulate on a $30 ounce? This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. You know Herb Thrasher from the Herb Thrasher Flower Hour. Now get ready for Herb Age Designs for the proud cannabis consumer. Herb Age Designs, lifestyle gear for the 420 friendly. Herb Age Designs, we've got frisbee golf discs and durable hemp gear. Herb Age Designs, we've got shot glasses, drinking glasses, coffee mugs, and beer cozies. Check us out on Facebook and online at HerbAgeDesigns.com and follow Herb Age and Herb Thrasher on Twitter. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show. And it's the first time in two years, or now first time in a year and a half, that I had a decent night's sleep because the arthritis pain was gone. You can find Radical Russ online everywhere. It's time for Cannabis Facts About Alzheimer's from Robert Platshorn's TheSilverTour.org. This message is supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. A new Florida study in the journal Molecular and Cellular Neuroscience found that cannabis promotes the growth of healthy new brain tissue. It can slow the effects of Alzheimer's and may, in fact, be able to halt it entirely. A long-term study by Ohio State University's professor Gary Wink concludes that people who regularly use marijuana get Alzheimer's at a much lower rate than others. This was Cannabis Facts from thesilvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at hempinc.com. 
total war against public and public number one. Ten federal criminal penalties for the one ounce of marijuana. Marijuana is probably the most dangerous drug. Legalization is just another word for surrender. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. This is not medicine. This is a Cheech and Chong show. Encourage people to use less drugs. I am ill. That was the point. I think we'd be a mistake to leave the state. Negative reports coming out of Colorado. So how are we going to sell tax and regulate on a $30 ounce? It was something I got into a discussion with, with one of the guests here at Delta nine house and studios where we were talking about the ongoing legalization of marijuana. And it was brought up how much money the States would be making, how dumb it was for them not to legalize because there's so much money they could make on marijuana legalization. And I always get a little concerned when we get to that part of the discussion because I worry about us setting ourselves up to fail if we continue to base our arguments on these economic reasons. If we continue to say that it's going to create so many jobs and so much revenue and so much profit and specifically so much tax revenue for the states. Because with the exception of Alaska, which has a $50 per ounce tax, and the exception of California, which has a hybrid tax that includes a sales tax plus a weight tax, the states that have legalized marijuana so far have gone ahead with a percentage of the sales price as their tax, from as high as 37% excise tax in Washington State, plus up to 8.9% sales taxes at the state and local level, to other states like here in Oregon, where we t- tax at 20%, a combination of 17% state and 3% local. Massachusetts is looking at a total combined sales tax of about 12.5%. My, uh, Nevada's is looking at about 15% and so forth. And of course, when they make their estimates and their projections as to how much revenue the state will bring in on the taxes, they're basing it on what the sale price of marijuana is. And so those projections may be good for now. You might be able to say that if you're going to tax 30% on a $200 ounce or a $300 ounce that you're going to make X amount of money for the state. But the more states legalize, the more there's going to be a decrease in the price of marijuana. So that 30% off the $300 ounce sounds great. The 30% off the $30 ounce doesn't sound as good. With the taxes keyed to the price of marijuana, every decline in the price of marijuana is a threat to the budgets of these states that are depending on that marijuana tax money. We may be setting ourselves up where states are going to want to not see other states legalize, where it would not be in Oregon's best interest to see Idaho legalize because that might reduce some of their uh, share of the Idaho market that they're taking. As more and more states legalize, it becomes more and more, less and less expensive. And that further makes it harder to legalize in these future states because as those numbers continue to decline, our opponents will say, don't let them promise you anything about the taxes. Why? They're not going to get any of that tax revenue. You know, look at what happened over in Oregon where the price went down to 50 bucks an ounce and now they're not making any money, blah, blah, blah. Then the argument will start to be, that the tax on the marijuana isn't high enough to cover the costs of its regulation, all the costs of the testing and the inspection and the labeling and so forth. 
So they'll want to raise the percentage on that uh, on that tax. Then, of course, the problem becomes the more you raise that percentage tax, the bigger margin you provide to people working on the underground market to be able to undercut the value of that tax. If the retail price of the marijuana gets down to 30 bucks an ounce and you're charging a 30% tax on that, that's nine bucks worth of tax. You're selling that ounce for $39. You've given the, uh, the weed dealer the ability to sell a $35 ounce of weed, make five bucks on the, on the price and undercut the state by four bucks. So what's going to happen? We can't raise the tax too high or else it's a diminishing return on how many people will shop from the legal market. If we don't raise the tax high enough, there'll be a diminishing return on how many states can legalize because there won't be any perceived economic benefit to it. The other option that's discussed, like they did in Alaska, is to come up with a tax by weight. But that even gets more regressive as the price declines. A $50 tax on a $300 ounce is a 16% tax. A $50 tax on a $50 ounce is a 100% tax. And again, that provides all that extra margin for the underground market to be able to undercut the legal market. There has been some discussion, although it hasn't been implemented yet, of a tax based on potency, on the amount of THC someone is getting in their product. Again, an interesting concept that would not necessarily be subject to the problems that we have with weight or price, but still any added tax is going to increase the viability of underground producers and sellers. I don't know how this all turns out. I'm not an expert on taxation and finance, but I am an expert on smoking weed. And I know that here in the state of Oregon, it's very, very rare that I'm buying any marijuana from the legal regulated market. Very, very rare. I know too many people who are growers. I know too many people who are not just commercial or medical growers, but just personal hobby growers. We're allowed to grow four plants here in the state of Oregon. Every adult in their household can have four plants per household. And if you're doing it right, you can produce a lot of marijuana off of four plants. <clears throat> I have a book and an uh, author that I've interviewed uh, wrote a book called Three Alight, which talks about getting three pounds per 1,000 1, watt light. And so if you can get four plants, three pounds per 1,000 watt light, get four lights set up, one per plant, you could come up with 12 pounds off of your four plants. And that's more than enough for any one adult or two adults, and they're going to want to give away or sell some of that to people. So we cannot continue to base the need for marijuana legalization to happen on an economic argument because the longer we go with that, the more it diminishes in its ability to sway people. Now, luckily, we've got most of the people over the line. We're at 60% support uh, in the polls for marijuana legalization. But we got to worry about some of those people that are on that not strong support, but just kind of a somewhat support. People that aren't so much for marijuana as they are against prohibition. And we have to worry about losing some of their support if, it, if the perception comes to be that we oversold legalization. That we promised too much that we couldn't deliver. When they start seeing headlines about the tax revenues declining from Oregon, Colorado, and Washington, 
how will we respond then? I know how I will respond because my argument has always been, I don't care if it makes money, loses money, costs the state, benefits the state. Nobody has the right to tell me what I do with my body and what I put in it. We didn't decide whether or not gay people could be married based on whether or not it would cost people money or whether or not it would make money for wedding cake makers or, or any other consideration. We made it legal because it was their right and we were discriminating against them and we were denying them a right they already possessed. I believe we already possess this right to consume, to grow, to harvest, to share cannabis. I believe it's under our rights of the pursuit of happiness, our rights of privacy, our right of conscience, self-determination. If there's a constitutional right for a woman to get an abortion, there's a constitutional right for me to smoke a joint. That's all I'm saying. That's all the time we got for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned live on YouTube for hour two. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a scene, you're it, 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 you're